Hey everybody, question for you. What's so rank? It's the Mount Rushmore Podcast. With your host, Jeff, and Richard, and Michael. We are the Mount Rushmore Podcast, where we rate and rank the most ubiquitous of any given topic, and this Week is no different where Michael and Richard go up against each other in the Mount Rushmore of breaking the fourth wall. What does that even mean, Michael? Well, this is when a all the pretense of a particular TV show, movie, what have you, uh, the pretense that it is a fictionalized thing is broken down and a person or persons or something addresses the audience yes, or addresses a creator or addresses that removes itself from the idea of it being a fiction and says, uh, what's going on here? Yeah. Or did you just see that? Or mm-hmm. a nod and a wink or something that acknowledges that they are within a story. Yes. And what compels you about this? Uh, I was thinking of one very specific pick later on. Oh. Um, but... The idea of wall breaking is um, just really interesting, whether it's something that has gone back hundreds and hundreds of years, yeah. as we is is in plays quite often, yeah. or is something that is um, featured prominently in one of the most um, kind of not groundbreaking, but stylistically different comic book movies mm-hmm. of the last few years in Deadpool. Yeah. Like yeah. there are things that happen that you don't really expect. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just a really interesting trope that kind of allows the audience to, I don't know, be involved in a yeah. story in a different way. Yeah, it's fun. Not just, you're more of an active participant rather than just a, mm-hmm. a viewer. Cool. Or watcher or reader or whatever. Michael chose it. Richard, begin. All right, so my first choice is It's Gary Shandling Show. Also my first choice. Oh, wow, Cool. Fun. I have written down all of it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all of it. Which, which aspect? Oh, all of it. Just it, all of it. It starts from this theme song, mm-hmm. and is just so embedded in the DNA of the show. Yeah, I mean, it is a show about Gary Shandling, a stand-up comedian who is who knows that he is part of a sitcom, and and has a, a studio audience in his house. Yes, and that acknowledges the audience, that converses with the audience, that sometimes has the audience throw dinner rolls. Right. Uh, that by the third or fourth episode, you could see the audience. And <laughs> when they drove from like set to set, it, w- it wasn't just like he was turning to the audience mm-hmm. or the viewer yeah. and saying, making a sides or a joke. Not like a George Burns sort of thing where, you know, on the Dr- Burns and Allen show, he might turn to the, uh, the camera and, and give an aside. Yeah. This is just completely... Metafictional, just like, oh, the actual studio audience is actually in his house mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. One amazing show for Showtime. Yeah, absolutely. And the his neighbors sometimes would come over just so they could get in front of the audience. And sometimes he would decide that a that a, a plot line was taking too long. So he'd say, "Well, let's just go ahead and fast forward a year." Mm-hmm. And then there would it would be a year later. Yeah. yeah. So it completely it just broke all the rules of conventional rules of what you can and can't do on a on, on a sitcom. I mean, I and you mentioned that it was on Showtime. If this had been on like ABC ABC or CBS, it never 
it never would have got made. I read, eventually, I re- Fox did pick it up and kind and of reruns. reruns. Yeah, but I read an interview with uh, one of the creators, Alan Zweibel. Yeah, and he talked about that how like the first five minutes of one of the episodes, Gary Shandling on one episode is stuck in a hole, and like that's it. Like the the first five minutes are he's stuck in a hole. People are kind of looking for him. The uh-huh. theme song is playing, yeah. and he he talked about how you couldn't do that. On regular television. Yeah. But that the interesting thing is that uh, Gary Shandling wanted to keep this show as a traditional sitcom Mm -hmm. in some aspects, but then break it. And I think it comes from that you have to completely fully understand what something is in order to subvert it. Yeah. And I think that by being really um, true to what a sitcom is with three cameras specific sets you know he had his house in sherman oaks he had his uh, just diff- different parts it's yeah. just like this is this is very sitcom but let's take that let's break it up and do whatever we mm-hmm. want with it exactly and one of my favorite episodes is actually this weird meta meta episode that they they did in the middle of it which was the gary shandling show 30th anniversary special yeah yeah <laughs> where it was set up like like there had been a talk show that him and one of his neighbors were like, he was the host and his neighbor was like the Ed McMahon. Mm-hmm. And it was a whole like takeoff on like the Tonight Show anniversary specials where yeah. they show the Ed Ames, you know, Tomahawk mm-hmm. and the yeah. Coin yeah. Clip. <laughs> they had their own version of that and uh-huh. all the wacky things that had happened over the years yeah. on the show. And it was just like, where does this come from? In the mm-hmm. middle of this, like, you know, in the middle of this run of shows. It's very interesting because I, I wrote a note thinking about the show about how this show almost feels like. You know, it's obviously the precursor to Larry Sanders, but it almost feels like a talk show. The way that talk show hosts talk to not only the viewer, but talk to their audience mm-hmm. and engage with the audience of, or like the live studio audience. Like he kind of almost had that DNA in this show before it made it to Larry Sanders. Right. Or, you know, probably from all of his experience on the mm-hmm. Tonight Show itself is... Did he guest host that too? I think he sometimes, did, yeah. but like, oh yeah, he was for it was a common guest host. Yeah, it, it seemed to be like a talk show within a sitcom, but with something mm-hmm. completely and totally different. Yeah. Do you feel like there is, is enough structure remaining in the format of situation comedies on television for anybody to perceive how innovative? Shows like this were there was wasn't the first. I think there was like Herman's Head or Dream On. There's other things that kind of disrupted. Yeah, Dream On yeah. had like the the fake movie yeah. bits and Herman's Head I just they had yeah. they'd go back in his inter- yeah. interior monologue. Yeah. I, I what I worked out about this was that I think this was the precursor to something like Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Hmm. Which is you have the sh- you know a show that they're kind of acknowledging that there's an audience and that's who they're talking to. Yeah. And that's when they're making fun of the movies, they're doing it for the audience's behalf. Yeah. Um, so in that level, I, I just remember being a kid. You know, this it was I was in junior high when this was on. And it was just, it blew my mind. Yeah. Just, I'd never, you just, it was something I'd never seen before. And I think personally, it sort of changed the way I, th- I thought about like what you can, what you can do with a form and how you can, like Michael said, break it. Yeah. And what happens when you play around. Like, I think it's the same reason I liked Letterman so much, the old late night. Yeah. Because he was deconstructing the idea of what can you do with a talk show. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very similar to that. It's like deconstructing 
and turning on its head the whole idea of a sitcom. Yeah, I think had we not, as consumers, uh, been privy to or absorbed to our zeitgeist three decades of sitcoms leading up to this, or four, we might not have, he might not have be, been able to disrupt or deconstruct this uh, genre, because it was a genre we all knew the moves, so he was able to get in and kind of shake it all up, because right. Because we all knew what it was supposed to be already. That's a great choice. I'm glad you guys picked the same one. Okay, so we both came out with It's Gary Shandling's show. So, Michael, what is your second? Uh, mine is a beloved comedy from the 80s where the main character uh, advocates to the audience to sing. And that is the ending of the movie Scrooged. Oh, fun. Cool. So Bill Murray plays uh, Frank Cross, who's like a TV executive uh, that ultimately is like the Ebenezer Scrooge role. He's kind of seeing over this television studio that has decided to air a live version of A Christmas Carol. Um, Starring Jamie Farr, <laughs> Buddy Hackett. And the Solid Gold Dancers. And the Solid Gold Dancers. Mary Lou Retton also. Yeah. And he is, he's just, you know, this, you know, in the Scrooge manner, he is an awful person who... Um, is visited by three ghosts, yada, 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 gets to the end. He has his big epiphany. And in it, there's this double fourth wall breaking where suddenly he, you know, it's, it's in the middle of a Christmas carol and he comes out onto the stage and people are freaked out. And he starts telling the world about this magic of Christmas and the spirit of Christmas and the awakening that he's had. And he's talking directly to the audience in the film on camera. So he's looking through the camera to these people and talking to them and telling them that they can be good and all this stuff. And it, it feels very Bill Murray and ad libbed, but probably not totally. And then an even more Bill Murray essence of it is when he kind of gets people to start singing, um, put a little love in your heart and then starts addressing not just the audience within the movie, but like, the audience in the theater and starts this like sing along with the people that are in theory watching from home or watching from the theater. Yeah. And he starts referring to them, talking to the people at the back. Right. Okay. Only the people on the left side, the people on the right Mm -hmm. side. And it's this very strange, like it feels like just like a Murray ism. It feels like him showing up on people's, engagement photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like he's been doing this his entire life of someone that just has inserted himself into your world. He's he's yeah. breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. Just being him on the street and mm-hmm. like, oh, is that Bill Murray? Oh, will he be in our pictures? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he'll be in everybody's pictures. <laughs> and it's like this real pure moment in the movie where you could almost feel like I was probably too young at the time. I was probably... When did this come out? 88, 89? I was probably 10 years old, so I'm guessing I didn't go see Scrooge. Yeah. But you, I wonder how many theaters actually did start mm-hmm. singing. Yeah. Start responding to yeah. the thing on screen mm-hmm. in a different way that you respond to seeing Star Wars and mm-hmm. you're just excited or whatever. Yeah. I do feel like Murray had established this on-screen persona, and we've discussed his career before and how he began as the... the, uh, the subculture counterculture underdog and in stripes in meatballs he established his movie identity as this uh a reluctant leader who gives a big speech at the end mm. how it just doesn't matter 
or we're misfits, and we're, but we're all misfits together. And so I think audiences expected him to do something like that, but we're seeing him in this new role. I think we discussed this before, too, is even though he was the young TV exec, he was still part of the establishment. Or, uh, But yeah, I think that's, that's funny. I, I know at the time when I did see it in the theater, we all were waiting for him to do this bit. Because That's interesting. It, and waiting for him to sing, because as his Nick Rails character on SNL, he had established this guy who is, uh, who is the lounge lizard. So That's really interesting. Yeah, so that was... I, I read that this movie was a bit of a comeback for him. He hadn't made a movie in a couple years, yeah. and this kind of was a movie that was kind of took a long time to develop in itself. Yeah, he did so, Razor's Edge, and then he, I think he says, feed me Seymour at some point. Which kind yeah, of harkens does. to his uh, little shop cameo. Yeah, he was the, yeah. the guy in the dentist chair. In yeah. The shop, yeah, yeah, it's a cool and pick. That, like another fourth, uh, you know, fourth wall breaking, referencing another movie. Yeah, that yeah. he'd been in. <laughs> yeah, quoting himself that he takes himself. He at that point he seems to stop becoming Frank Cross. And yeah, it's just Bill Murray. Yeah, I wonder at that point. Um, well, there's another. There's another actor that I would love to see if you guys drop that I think that director could actually just not keep from doing that. <laughs> you know, they just roll the camera, they get what they get sometimes with Hurricane Murray. All right, uh, what do you got, Richard? So I've got a movie that actually literally breaks the fourth wall. And as in, it breaks the wall down and you realize you're actually on set at a movie theater okay. or a movie shoot. And that's Blazing, Blazing Saddles. Saddles. All right, that was a suggestion. Let me see if that was an actual... Uh, it's not a... It, that was a suggestion from one of our... Uh, one of our listeners. Our listeners, our many listeners. Yeah, it's a great... I mean, I shouldn't have to explain Blazing Saddles, yeah. why it's a great movie to anyone. Yeah. I just love the idea. And, and if... Look, if you haven't seen it, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Stop the podcast. Stop the podcast. Go watch Blazing Saddles. Come back in a couple of hours. Yeah. The whole third... The, basically, the final chase scene through the... Uh, or, the fight scene uh, in the town spills out out of the set and into the back lot of Warner Brothers, where they uh, invade a Busby Berkeley style musical mm-hmm, directed mm-hmm. by uh, Dom DeLuise, yeah, who gets punched by Slim Pickens saying, "Piss on you! I'm in a Mel Bo- I'm in a Mel Brooks film." <laughs> um, they wind up. Let's see. Uh, Hedy Lamar, Hedley Lamar winds up ducking into the Grauman's Chinese Theater to try and get away. And starts watching Blazing Saddles, which is playing on the theater. Um, And the heroes wind up riding off into the sunset for a little bit until a chauffeured limousine pulls up. Then they get in the limousine and drive off. Mm -hmm. It's, it's. Is it, what was, what was the purpose of that within the context of the film? Was it just like, oh, we can do this, so we're going to do this? Nothing quite gets wrapped up in that. I'm curious because I was I was thinking of a different Mel Brooks film. I was thinking of High Anxiety. No, like just you know there are bits and pieces from like Young Frankenstein, where uh, you know uh, Marty Feldman kind of turns the camera, turns the yeah. camera, right. or even um, um, uh, Pe- Men in Tights. Peter Peter Boyle too. He you know he kind of gives a big yeah. eye roll that is just an eye roll to the camera yeah. of like yeah. look at all this stuff that the- yeah at the very end whenever they. Whenever he gives like the yeah 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 thing. And, and then yeah I mean he does that in a lot of his movies anxiety literally broke through a glass like, well, wall. yeah um you know men in tights they have uh oh, what's his name uh, uh Carrie was yeah turn around and say I'm you know and I can speak in a British accent mm-hmm. sort of thing um I, I I just wonder like as 
at at the end of that movie, I mean, it's it's one thing to do it as a you know as a thing in a movie and to bring you in. It's another thing to just end the movie with with chaos. I don't know. This isn't one of my favorite Mel Brooks films, mm-hmm. really. Oh. I, because of that, because at the end, it's just like I don't. Is it just for fun? Is it just yeah. like silly? And you just when, break it down, and like maybe that's just like I, when Python ends Holy Grail with the police coming to shut down the <laughs> production. <laughs> I remember thinking that was kind of anticlimactic, but it does seem to be one of those ways you end a film without a real ending. <laughs> Anyhow, well, they so. do. They do go back to the movie within the movie at the end uh, and have the scene where he tells him, "Well, I'm going to be moving on and going someplace else, yeah. so we're going to ride off into the sunset." So it does attempt to, to resolve it that way. Yeah. That's when they ride off into the sunset in the limousine. Yeah, I think that the whole one of the big points of Blazing Saddles it's just basically about playing with the conventions of a western. Yeah, sure. Same way that you know. Young Frankenstein did with uh, horror. her universal horror films, or yeah. you know, anxiety did with Hitchcock films. So I think that I think that you get to that end. You've got the the big chase scene, or you've got the big fight scene, and I think that it just became okay. If we're going to play with the conventions of this, how do we how do we break this? How do we how do we take this? Yeah, and sort of how do we make this matter? Yeah, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was just a logical, yeah. It does flow out of that. It does seem funny that Mel Brooks films did that in real life. They broke out of the film. They broke out of their genre and into the musical. So with with right. uh, uh, Young Frankenstein, and I thought there was another one that they of his the producers, of course. So yeah, that's a fun pick. That's a fun pick, uh, Michael. Oh, we're at halftime. I believe we are at halftime. And at this opportunity, uh, I want to invite you to tune in to our next episode, which will be the Mount Rushmore of Lone Wolves. Uh, Anybody? Oh, there's one. I'm not alone. Hey, there's another wolf. Oh, it's a wolf man, Jack. Oh, wow. One of your radios. One of your radios. My son, Felix, who's 19 months old, uh, he inserts Big Bad Wolf as his joke for everything. It's his joke? That's his joke. <laughs> so, uh, what's the common ins- what condition that he would do this? Uh, knock, knock. Let's, no, uh, we're going to go to the zoo today. Uh, who? Uh, let's get in the car. Who's going to be in the car? Big Bad Wolf. Big Bad Wolf's going to be in the car. <laughs> and he just nods happily. He loves everything. Big, uh, he asks you to pick up like the little toy phone. Uh-huh. Uh, who's calling? Big Bad Wolf. Big, wolf, wolf. Big, Big Bad, Bad wolf. Wolf's calling. You have to have a conversation with Big Bad Wolf. Uh, also, on the other line is um, Princess Leia. Oh, okay. <laughs> do they ever talk to each other? Uh, sometimes Leia. we'll do like uh, three-way calling. That's and we'll, great. I'll conference them in. <laughs> uh, but Big Bad Wolf is always... There's a lot of wolves going on in our house. I love it. Grandma and Grandpa's a nice. is nice. Big Bad Wolf's nice. <laughs> Big Bad Wolf is nice. Just nods. He just loves Big Bad Wolf. Uh, Okay, Lone, Lone Wolves, excited. Lone Wolves. And, um, you know, that is a kind of a bizarre uh, topic suggestion. You've probably listened to past episodes. You'll realize that we do pick some uh, idiosyncratic suggestions, and you are invited to let us know what you'd like to hear us discuss. If you want to suggest a Mount Rushmore, go for it by going to the Mount Rushmore social handles. Those are on Facebook. Those are on Twitter. Those are on Instagram. And you may suggest a topic that 
heck uh, you may actually participate in because past su- su- topic suggestors have been uh, podcast participants in the past. And we are back. Okay. All right. Uh, it ended on Blazing Saddles. So it's going with Michael's third. Um, I mentioned a comic book character earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned Deadpool. Also on my list. It's not Deadpool. Oh! oh. You tried to jump in there. I did, didn't I? That's right. Caught me. I caught you. Uh, it's not Deadpool. Uh, someone did it a little bit earlier, and that was the David Byrne ref, uh, run of She-Hulk back in the uh, late 80s. Is this that David, same David Byrne from Talking Heads? It might be called David Byrne's. Different. That's so funny. Is, uh, is she, is she Hulk think, wearing a giant I think she should be a professional suit. model and an attorney. <laughs> That's my David Byrne impression. The, uh, from, good. from 1989 for a couple years, uh, the sensational She-Hulk run. And uh, the She-Hulk character of Jennifer Walters knew she was in a comic book. She would talk back to the writer. She would get angry at him. She would rip through pages. She would often sometimes rip through advertisements to get further on into the book because uh, she had this kind That's of meta-fictional awesome. meta awareness that she was in this comic book and oh, an awareness that she um, suffered by the writer of being like this kind of tall, strong, also buxom yeah. character. Uh, there was like a joke at the, in like the letter section uh, about her jump roping naked and they put that into a comic. Oh wow! They eventually wrote on that, like on page twenty-two. Yeah, this character would jump rope naked, and it's wow. all about her talking back to the writer. Can't believe that you've done this to me. That's awesome. Um, Repeat where? Who's David Barnes? Uh, he was a writer for okay. Marvel Comics okay. in the late eighties. Okay. He also worked for like DC Comics too. Okay, he's kind of he's had his hands in like everything. He yeah. did a bunch of X Men stuff. He did the, um, I think he worked on the Avengers and JLA and stuff. But, uh, so it was never, it ultimately kind of just went away. Yeah. This idea, they kind of had an issue where she and the Hulk went to go see his psychiatrist. Oh. Like he was like, oh, I know someone that can kind of, (laughs) you can talk to about this after like his. Oh, it was a neurological disorder that she could. Yeah. Okay. But it kind of comes back and forth here and there for, for the character in her kind of current state of oh, affairs. Cool. She kind of just like ignores it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, this is a thing. Yeah, I know what's going on, yeah. but I just don't talk about it. Yeah. But the way that it was done within the comics, um, I thought was really interesting, especially uh, with the art and how she would literally tear through pages, yeah. white pages to get to the next page or yeah. tear through panels or walk over panels and just... It's, you know, kind of in the same way that, like, Gary Shandling would just go from set to set, and yeah. you, you see there's no pretense there. It's just yeah. like, I know what I'm in. I can, I'm breaking the gutters. I'm uh-huh. going through all these things. And um, obviously, I think that was one of the things that kind of led the way for Richard's, obviously, next pick of yeah. Deadpool, yeah. who is this character that has, you know, this weird mutant ability to know that, one, he possibly can't die. He's kind of like uh, almost indestructible. Almost indestructible, but then also kind of has like this kind of hyper awareness that he is in a fiction. Yeah. In the same way that they also say that like kind of um the character of the Joker mm-hmm. kind of has that same sort of like yeah. crazy awareness that he's he knows he's in some sort of story and can yeah. never really die. So it doesn't uh, matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
But Deadpool. Yeah, Deadpool. I, 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 I'm not as steeped in the comic book tradition as you guys are. So I really came to Deadpool through the movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which I love. Which mm-hmm. I think I, I, I don't know how close they are to the comic. The he, comics. Uh, he eventually, like, he didn't start out as this character that could do that. It, it took oh, really? a number of years. He was just like a character that had like these amazing fighting skills mm-hmm. and was ravaged by this weird disease. He had this mutant. I don't even know what his mutant powers are. Mm-hmm. But eventually, the writer Doesn't he I have think, a dose of Wolverine. Uh, who something. Knows? Okay, okay, I don't know. But He's I got think adamantium. Uh, yeah, bone shards. Boner pills, yeah. <laughs> uh, eventually, in like the late 90s, early 2000s, he kind of developed his own series, as, and um, they kind of just had him start talking back and referring to things that he shouldn't know about. Right. And I, I think we mentioned this on the Rushmore of post-credit scenes um, episode we did a few weeks ago. Uh, the post-credit scene for Deadpool which is basically a, almost a shot-for-shot, line-for-line recreation of, a... of the Ferris Bueller's Day mm-hmm. Off mm-hmm. post credit scene. And to me, that just kind of shows kind of the heights yeah. of meta-meta-meta-commentary mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that they're, they're going after there. Yeah. The, um, the character's interesting because I don't think, especially with the movie, it wouldn't have worked without Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, sure. I, this yeah. is, which is the first time anyone had, had ever said that. When Denholm <laughs> Elliott was going to play Deadpool. <laughs> well, Gil Good was originally Gil attacked. Good. Denholm Elliott he died. in a big spot. It's <laughs> um, so funny. Uh, you know, I think for him, it was more of like a passion project. Like yeah. for, he probably saw himself in the character as much that he could mm-hmm. do all these things. Yeah. It's funny if you see, he has like these weird commercials out for like some shitty, like. Uh, iPhone game oh. where he's just being like a total asshole oh, really? <laughs> to like everybody. Like, yeah. <laughs> and like, it feels very much of, of the character of Deadpool. I, he's oh, okay. probably not like this, but it feels very much like he's adopted this persona. Yeah. It's even getting even more meta. Yeah. That he has become the person that he is pretending to be. I feel like in Blade, Ryan Reynolds was already doing, I think he, was he in Van Wilder too or something yes. like that? He, Ryan Reynolds is, uh, I think he's, he has proven himself to be a gifted comedian, but I would say his delivery had a, uh, was tainted by Jim Carrey mimicry early on. He had this Ace Ventura kind of thing that he was doing and waggling his head to let you know that he's saying something funny. And I'm glad to see that he's synthesized that into his own jam because he's doing it very successfully. And I also think Ryan Reynolds as an actor is maybe doing what uh, the comic book writers or sitcom creators have been doing for decades, and that is wanting to get the fuck out of this format that is stifling. So I do think fourth wall direct address smacks of artistic uh, um, liberation. And that's why I think it's engaging, because it seems like the most uh, shortcut connection to the mind of the of the creator. Mm. That's one thing I love about it. Cause I feel like, Oh my God, they've broken free of the shackles. And that person who's been frustrated by the structure of these panels, been struck, uh, structured by the frustrated by the acts of a sitcom and how you have to establish all this stuff in the first thing. And then you have to let it evolve, let the beats happen organically to get, you know, I think 
that is a fun part of this. Is it that comes. Uh, it just they're breaking come, rules. It comes from like you know, it's the same thing. It, it all seem all of these conversations go back to experience in terms of Gary Shandling, who's you know, who you have to fully understand the thing at hand before you can break it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm guessing it was like that too with Mel Brooks. You know, he came from uh, uh, yeah. TV. Oh yeah, yeah, and had to understand the format before he could yeah. break down all the walls at the end. Mm. Same thing with these comic writers. You know, they've been writing, uh, you know, with David uh, Byrne, he'd been writing for 10, 15 years before oh, you're yeah. like, oh, I can break I can subvert rules. all this. Yeah. There's another artist, uh, writer artist, Dave Sim, who did a book called Cerebus, mm-hmm. who eventually, like the book just kind of devolved into this weird, uh, very sh- strange uh-huh. kind of just ultra commentary that, was self-referential to comic books, but then also kind of went off on these long tangents and like, but he put in a number of years putting, writing this comic himself. And, um, I think a lot of times you needed 10, 15 years of like solid superhero movies to be able to actually comment on superhero movies. Otherwise you're just getting like kind of a Zucker brothers, uh, scary movie type yeah. thing that doesn't feel earned. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people try to jump in too fast and it doesn't feel yeah. earned. And I think with the fourth wall, you've got to earn breaking mm-hmm. that fourth wall. I think what the the creator does often is tell you they are accelerating time or skipping over time, but not... And allowing us to know, well, this character development that normally would happen is happening. We're just skipping. We're just cutting to that chase. Uh, so that's uh, yeah. But they know the rules. They just are playing fast and loose with them. What do you got, Richard? My last one is the 1953 Bugs Bunny Daffy Duck Creative Jam, known as Duck Amuck. Duck Amuck. This will be perfect. Perfect choice. You will you will recognize this as the one where a unseen animator is making Daffy Duck's life a living hell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. By uh, erasing him, changing his the way he looks, turning uh-huh. him into a oh, that's thing fun. with a giant daisy head and a flag for a tail that says Screwball on it, and putting him in different scenes, and then you know having this backdrop and the scenery fall on him. Turn into the ocean. Have Turn, him, yeah. yeah, falling. He got drawn like a sailor, so he starts singing uh, over the seas. <laughs> let's go. And oh, then he fun. gets dumped right into the water. And this is this is meta on several levels. First off, it's meta that, it, and they do this from time to time in the Bugs Bunny, Warner Brothers, Merry Melodies type cartoons, where that you show that these characters are actually actors yeah. performing. Even though they're actually not characters, they're things that are drawn. So they've done, they had done that in the past, I think. This took it to the next level where they're not just even saying these guys are actors playing these parts in this movie. Like Daffy Duck in uh, uh, Durlock Holmes. Yes. Or uh, he was him playing the aforementioned from last week's Robin Hood, where it's like, yeah, as a character, it's, it's as if he's a character at the Warner Brothers animation studio. Going out for the role of uh, dot dot dot. They even have a later one, I think, that's Bugs Bunny getting a "This Is Your Life" mm-hmm. yeah. type of yeah. Yeah, yeah. treatment, where they show him getting into his first big break as an actor and yeah. all this stuff. This takes it to the next level, which is not just saying these are actors; they're saying these are cartoon characters. 
they know that they are cartoon characters. They know that their whole existence is based on the existence of this animator, and they have no control over, yeah. essentially, their lives. Yeah. Um, and apparently, uh, Chuck Jones created this as kind of a a way to kind of prove a point, which is that animated characters aren't just based on what they look like mm-hmm. or any other characteristics that you would see. Basically, is Daffy Duck still Daffy Duck if he doesn't look like Daffy Duck anymore? Or if he doesn't sound like him? Or if he's, you know, all these different things. He wanted to try and prove a point that, no, Daffy Duck still has a personality. Mm-hmm. Daffy Duck is still a character, no matter what he looks like or sounds like or what situations you put him in. And, of course, at the end of this, it turns out that the animator is actually Bugs Bunny. Mm-hmm. Ah. So, so, yeah, you kind of pull back, and he starts calling him a coward. Yeah, you little stink. I mean, I stinker. Yeah. That's the kicker. Um, which then adds another layer to it. I mean, that so is Bugs Bunny not a cartoon character, but Daffy Duck is? Is there someone else that's drawing Bugs Bunny drawing Daffy Duck? Yeah. It gets into this, like, real, like, third-level yeah. shit. That's a... Uh... It seemed like doing something that playwrights had only been doing for about 20 years before then. Right. Uh, in which the performer could question uh, the hand of the creator and right. there, the, therefore raise existential questions about life. It's a very postmodern, for being 1950, whatever, so it was 53, 55, yeah. it's a very postmodern sort mm-hmm. of, sur- it's surrealist in a lot of ways. So you yeah. can see the influence of like Dolly and things like that. Isn't it? Not wa- Dolly Parton, but. Isn't it? wild that Warner Brothers cartoons just peaked for like 15 years. Like they had a great 1940 something, maybe late, late thirties or no, early forties to like 1961. And then that was it. Yeah. And then it was just like trying to replicate that. And they've never been able to get back to a perfect cartoon like Duck oh. and Muck or like, mm-hmm. it is crazy to It is crazy yeah. to me that they just like, they can never get back to it. Like the seventies Bugs Bunny cartoons are just like, yeah. Gar- Awful. Oh yeah. Garbage. It's like garbage. Like something think, changed in America. Do you think the platform changed? <laughs> JFK died. Yeah. And so JFK did the ability died to and make Warner decent. Brothers cartoons Well, didn't died. the venue change? Like those were produced for television. Yes. And the others were produced for cinema. Right. Before, right. That's a very for good, adults that's before film. That's an interesting point. Maybe. I don't mm. know. If I, yeah. I think that's a good point. Okay, Michael. No, I think it's film? a good point. I think it's a better point. Well, I think it's a really better point. I think it's better than any of my points. It's a double... Thup for a thuck-a-dash. <laughs> <laughs> What's your final, Michael? Rabbit season. Uh, <laughs> my final choice is the Beatles song Glass Onion. Oh, wow. Wow. Where John Lennon just comes out swinging at all of his critics. He comes out singing at the audience, ne- yeah. not necessarily to the audience. He comes swinging and singing at the people uh-huh. that are trying to bring their own opinions and thoughts to what his yeah. songs are about. And he's like, sometimes these songs are just he literally said gobbledygook. Yeah. Like sometimes they're just words and he tries to dispel and disprove or add a new wrinkle on things to give these conspiracy theorists new, uh, ideas about his songs. And it's just like, it's perfectly named as glass onion. Yeah. You can see right through this 
thing. Mm-hmm. It has all these layers, but it's not as deep as oh. you, the audience, think it is. Wow, I didn't know that that's... I, I just heard the self-referential stuff, and I never dug deep into the lyrics. Down I assumed that, that it was him just like... I, I, you people think that these songs are deeper than yeah. what they are, but yeah. maybe... Paul, is, was, Paul was just wearing a walrus costume, and like we're just you know guys in, at twenty seven, twenty eight years old yeah. running around the field in like big walrus. This and is all in a costumes. day's work. Yeah, here are fixing a hole in the ocean. I'm, he references. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, one, two, three, four songs in it: Strawberry Fields, Lady Madonna, Fool on the Hill, and Fixing a Hole. You know, and I am the walrus, and I am the walrus, and like you five. So he's pulling bits and pieces from songs. And almost highlighting those songs to suggest there's something deeper, but probably not. Right. I don't know. I found it's, I think it's hard to sing. It's hard to do fourth wall breaking with songs. Yeah. Because often it, uh, people sing with the word you a lot, Mm -hmm. singing to you. But this, I don't know, this song itself feels very responsive and very directed at a an audience yeah. rather than at a listener. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a big distinction in that. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're singing to someone that's casually listening, uh she loves you yeah 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 is different than so you so I told you about strawberry fields yeah. and I told you that nothing is real. Like I don't know, it feels uh, aggressive in mm-hmm. a way that maybe was you know, you could feel it was like the end of yeah, kind of their work together. Well, that's really interesting. I never really evaluated that song in that way. So, um, um, and I, I don't know if I'm right. I yeah. mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you know, but the guy's dead. What are you going to do? Yeah, what's he going to do? The ghost of John Lennon is going to come haunt me. What's interesting is, th- yeah, he will. Um, what's interesting to me about this is now, what are we doing? We are trying to provide medi- you know, this deep commentary. Sure. On the song about him saying, "Don't look too deep into these songs." Yeah. We are literally doing the thing that he is warning us not to do. Well, I welcome the ghost of John Lennon to come back. And there is an impression I can actually do. What, John Lennon? I don't know, maybe a little bit. Ah. Uh, I think it needs to be a little more glottal. No, that's George's George. George is more glottal. So, can you do Ringo now? Uh, uh, I don't know. Peace and love. Peace and love. Peace and love. And then there's the other one. We don't there's need the to other talk one. about him. I think you do. Um, Okay, so some mind-blowing suggestions. I want to read some of the suggestions from our audience. Uh, The first one, I imagine you guys thought it might have been too obvi, but you did kind of reference it uh, somewhat with the Deadpool um, suggestion. That's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ian Fettergren and Hunter Holtbell both suggested that. Many folks suggested Zach Morris, the character from Saved Saved by by the Bell. Ryan McNicholas was one of those people. A really cool suggestion from um, James Walker was Alfie, the Michael Caine film. And he begins to talk to the audience right at the beginning. I suppose you're going to think the credits have stopped rolling. That's my worst. That's now John John Lennon. Is that your John Lennon? That's John Lennon as Michael Caine. Everybody can do Michael Caine except for me. And uh, um, was reading that the director... um, director's family were many of them were um british uh music hall performers so audience direct address and breaking the fourth wall ah. was part of that lewis gilbert uh would also 
um, direct another movie with um, the characters speaking right to the audience after that, and then direct a bunch of Bond films, which is cool. Um, so there. So there was also uh, the one in the fourth spot was Groucho in any film sure. he, ever, he ever did. That's a good point. Yeah, mm, that like was that an one. impactful yeah, one as a solid. But back to uh, reality and your great choices. And going for It's Gary Shandling Show in the first spot. Uh, gonna go with Scrooged, really just because of the interesting um, meta within meta that you described, Michael. And uh, I'm afraid this might be um, uh, going with Deadpool for the third, and then Glass Onion for the fourth. Okay. So, good job, dudes. Mainly Michael. Mainly Michael. Do you guys hear something in the background? It's like another podcast. Are those people talking about us? What's going on? They were not. They were not? Oh, God. For a second, I thought maybe there's a podcast that featured our podcast in the podcast. Well, someone's podcasting about that podcast. Is somebody podcasting about that podcast? Okay. <sighs> this has been the Mount Rushmore. It has Rushmore. to be a radio so show weird. about the podcast. It does. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> or something. Something. This has been the Mount Rushmore of Breaking the Fourth Wall. I, as always, am Jeff. I, the actor who plays Richard. Michael. Downloading this podcast.